0: Okay, Caleb already referenced the fact that this psalm is said to be of Solomon. Only two psalms have Solomon's name in the heading, and that is 127 and 72. So 127, the only other psalm that... Speaks of Solomon the headed. This is a royal psalm because it deals with the kings. We have already talked about the fact that this is the end of book two. One of the things that's significant about these royal psalms that speak of the king is they often appear at what people speak of as the scenes. There's a royal psalm in Psalm 2, which is, of course, very near the beginning of the psalms. And then there is this one in 72, Psalm 89, which is the end of book 3, is going to lament the fall of the king, or the, it seems like God's loving kindness to David has failed. And he's asking about that. So, so at critical moments, the end of book two, the end of book three, what all of this, I think, does, it just makes that person of the king important, so important in the book of Psalms. And when they thought of a coming Messiah, they thought in terms of a king generally they also thought in terms of a priest but but let's read psalm 72 from the new american standard bible and we will try to outline this in a moment but in verses 1 through 4 give the king your judgments o god and your righteousness to the king's son may he may he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May He vindicate the afflicted of the people and save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Let them fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May He come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In His days may the righteous flourish... And the abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow down before him, and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. And the lives of the needy he will say, He will rescue their lives from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So he may live and the gold of Sheba be given to him. And let them pray continually, pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. May there be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city flourish like the vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as sun the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him Blessed, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now you can tell me if you've got preliminary ideas about the psalm, but as we seek to kind of give some grasp of outlining the psalm, verses one through fourteen will ask God to give the king, to give the king judgment and righteousness. Judgment and righteousness. Verses 5 through 7 is just a prayer for the long life of the king, the long life and the prosperity of the king. Then in verses 8 through 11, we see the universal dominion of the king. Verses 12 through 14 will be much like verses 1 through 14 in that it will stress the king's righteousness and justice. But but let's pick that up that outline in a moment and let's look at the text. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's sons. Do some of your versions have justice instead of judgments? Uh, The ancient Hebrew text had a plural term for judgment and some of the ancient translations had a singular term which lends more to justice. So that might be a reason for this, even though the words are very closely related. But one of the highest compliments to a king in the ancient world was that he was said to do justice... And righteousness. And you see that phrase, justice and righteousness, used to describe David in 2 Samuel 8 in verse 15. It was used to describe Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 9. And it was also used to describe Josiah in Jeremiah 22, 15, and 16. I think these are the only kings in Judah that are said to do justice and righteousness. Now, I may have overlooked something, but I think these are the only ones. But but notice, after it mentions Solomon's name, the first word in the text, in the original, is the word God. And give the king your judgments, O God. Why would you? Why would it be worrying like that? Give the king your judgments.
1: Well, I, I, to me, it's—I can think about it as you want God to have His justice be the same justice that the king yeah. represents,
0: or that our justice imitates His.
1: I didn't say that. Well, you did better.
0: Well well you gave it an So as you set it up and make it easy for the next guy to follow. But 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 you think too about Solomon's most famous case. Solomon's most famous famous case. It's my baby. Another woman, no, it's my baby. And Solomon says, This one says it's my baby, this one says it's my baby. Bring me a sword. And I'll cut the baby in two and give half to both. And one of these brilliant ladies says That's a good idea. And the other one says, no, no, give her the baby. And the Bible emphasizes that Solomon's wisdom was from God at the end of that section. Right before that, was where Solomon was told you just ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom and then at the closing of the section it's emphasized that the wisdom is from God. To even have the wisdom to govern properly and to do justice and to do righteousness requires God's wisdom, God's insight, and God's blessing. And so this is a request to, to God God for the king that he blessed the king in this particular respect that, that the king exercises God's judgments and God's righteousness now this isn't the these aren't the only royal psalms we have studied Psalm 45 for example and you remember in Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7 the king has said to love righteousness and hate Iniquity. He loved righteousness. He hated iniquity. And in this passage, give the king your judgments, uh, O God. In, in verse 2, May He judge the people with righteousness, and you're afflicted with justice. Uh, do your versions um, all have the word afflicted there. Uh, what, what are some other versions in verse two, Mary?
1: Poor.
0: The poor, the poor. Um, I, I think this is the same word that's used in verse twelve. The same word used in verse twelve, which is translated uh, needy, and uh, it is also translated. Uh, it's translated afflicted in verse. In verse, um, no it may be translated afflicted both in verse um, 4 and verse 12. The same word is used in 4 and 12. I'm simply looking for how it is translated. But it can be translated afflicted or needy. Is that what you said very needy? Afflicted or poor, excuse me. And then you also have the word needy, which is used in verse 4, in verse 12, and twice in verse 13. It's not used in this verse, but it's used in 72 verse 4, and that word will be used several other times. Now, what is the significance of of the king caring for the afflicted, caring for the poor, caring for the needy. Uh, And sometimes it's described in other ways as, for example, in verse 12, one who has no helper. What is the point in emphasizing this?
1: Well, often they had no one to advocate for them they were just abused and so we see God steps in as that advocate and then he wants the king to do that
0: too yes as Jesus said as, as much as you've done it to the least of these brothers of mine and these would be the least people in his kingdom the ones with the least clout and the least power and he is willing to care them Now, I know sometimes in our culture we may tend to think someone is right just because they are poor. or uh, And the Bible warns us, don't decide against or for the poor because he is poor. Or don't decide against the rich because he's rich. You see that in Exodus 23 verse 3 and verse 6. But in most cultures, in most cases, it tends to be those with less who are sometimes the victims of a lack of concern by those who are rulers. May He judge the people with righteousness and you're afflicted with justice. And when you care for the least, when the king cares for the least, he is making conditions where the land will be blessed and the land will be prosperous. In verse 3, let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills... In righteousness. Now, peace can refer to just completeness, wholeness. Uh, it is not just physical prosperity, but it is everything that is good. And the mountains are bringing peace. And in verse 4, may he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the needy, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Now, this particular word, crush, is used in other places. For example, in Psalm 94.5, it refers to how the wicked treat the poor and the widow and the orphan. They crush them. They crush them. Here, God is said to crush these who often crush others. Save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. I don't know about you, but when I read verse 4, I think the responsibilities of a king that this outlines are not much different than what Bible the Bible tells us about government in Romans 13 verses 3 and 4. That government is to punish evildoers... And to praise those who do well. 1 Peter 2 verses 13 and 14 have the same kind of idea. It means you're going to care for those who are righteous, but who are poor and who are needy. And you're going to crush and run over those who are oppressors and who do wrong. Now, as a king, you're the highest judge in the land. One of the cases that illustrates that is that case about Solomon that we saw just a moment ago. But also, you remember when Nathan came in before David and told him that case about the ewe lamb in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The king was the highest judge in the land. And so he cannot decide against the poor and afflicted just because they are poor and afflicted. He cannot wink at the oppressor because he might be rich and powerful. He is to use his throne to enforce God's standards and God's holiness and God's right. Now, what else comes to mind from those verses? Anything? Verses five through seven are a prayer for the long life and the prosperity of the king. In verse five, let them fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout your generations. Sun and the moon been around a long time, haven't they? Uh, since since about day four of creation. Um, What is interesting to me is Psalm 89, verses 35 through 37. We've already put on the board that Psalm 89 was a royal psalm. But listen to how Psalm 89, 35 through 37 compares God's covenant with David to the sun and the moon. Uh, Once, This is verse 35, Psalm 89. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Salah. His throne is as the sun, verse 36, and it will be established forever like the moon. He uses these fixed objects of nature as a statement of His eternal covenant. Now, In this particular passage, let them fear you while sun endures as long as moon throughout all generations. May may those who are your subjects fear you and honor you and and respect you. And may they wish long life to you. Remember when uh, you see people appear before Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. O king, live forever, they say, in those places. And the king's blessing to the people is like rain falling upon the grass. Now, that is not the only time that comparison is made in Scripture. In David's psalm, in Second Samuel 23, verse 4, he says, of God, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel spoke to me, And said, He who rules over men righteously, who rules in fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after the rain. So, it is like a beautiful morning, but it's also like the grass... After the sunshine hits it, after the rain has fallen on it. It's not, not the exact same words, but it's the same kind of idea that rain could be a blessing to a people, and then the sun that comes after the rain. And, he, and he's saying, may, may the king the king that's good is like this. In verse 7, in his days, may the righteous flourish and the abundance of peace till the moon is no more. In his days may the righteous flourish. If you have a king who crushes the oppressor and saves the needy and the afflicted, that gives an opportunity for those who are good people to do well. This is what Proverbs 2828 28 says. When the wicked rise <clears throat> men hide themselves but when they perish, the righteous increase. Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-eight: The wicked rise, men hide themselves. When they perish, when the wicked perish, the righteous increase. There are other verses that same kind of idea in Proverbs. But one of the blessings of a righteous ruler, the kind of ruler this passage talks about, is it provides opportunity for the right kind of people to do well. People that that seek to honor God and the abundance of peace till there is till the moon is no more. Any comments on five through seven? Any thoughts there? Okay, verse. 8 through uh, 11 is going to talk about the king's um, eternal dominion. And verses 12 through 14 will go back to talk about him caring for the poor. And then verses 15 through 17, how he is a blessing to all. And then there's a doxology. And an ending to this section of the Book of Psalms in verses 18 through 20. Now, this universal dominion of the king has been described in Psalm 2. We'll look at that in just a moment. But but let's look at verse verse 8 through 11. Let's read it again. May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. Let the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts and let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. May he rule from sea to see. Rivers to the ends of the earth. Look at Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. I want us just to see some similarity in these sections. Psalm 2, I will surely tell, this is verse 7, Psalm 2, 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations, As your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possessions you shall break them with a rod of iron you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now that spoke of the king having the same kind of universal dominion. Ask of me, I will give you the nations as an inheritance. But there it spoke of the king ruling them with rod of iron. It, it sounds like the king ha- has conquered these foes. Uh, there's not as much military emphasis here. But you notice his enemies are bowing and they are licking the dust before him the king is going to have worldwide, universal dominion. Now, that's going to lend itself to questions that we want to ask later. Uh, by the way, let me make a, a quick point that I think is interesting. That I hope is interesting to you too. Uh, but one writer said, if you compare all the parallel lines in these Psalms and in poetry in the Old Testament, that usually the second line has a little bit stronger of a picture. It raises the bar a little bit over the first line. And he, and he illustrates it. One of the passages he uses to illustrate it is verse 9. In the first picture, the nomads are bowing before him. In the second, they're licking the dust. Do you see how that's even an intensification of that picture of bowing down? But the same kind of picture of ruling from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth, is in Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. And we want to work all that in in, in a moment. But Tarshish... When you think of Tarsus, the Old Testament. Becky, you smile. So I'm thinking you're thinking the same thing I am. What do you think of?
1: Not in the Old Testament. Okay, what do you think of it? And I'm confusing it with Tarsus. Okay, okay. Um Jonah
0: fled to Yeah, I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Jonah. I was thinking he had a Jonah smile on his face. <laughs> but but uh, but uh, but Jonah. That's what I was thinking of. That uh, that let the kings of Tarshish. But it, but it was a faraway area. You know, Jonah is going to the far west, running away from God. Sheba and Seba are both long distances away. And yet, kings from all these far-flung places, from the west and from the east, from the south, they're going to come and bow. Now, I want you to be thinking, some of this we're laying the foundation. Some of these verses we want to come back and hit upon. Were there ever events, just be thinking, in Solomon's career that we see something similar to that. Just throw that out right now. Okay? Let's come back to that. But this picture of a universal dominion, now I'm gonna tell you the question I'm gonna ask, and I'm probably gonna ask this, probably going to ask this to Caleb or Faith or Isaiah, who had good opportunities to learn this when they were in college, is at what points In Israel's history, did they exercise that kind of dominion? That's a question I want to come back and ask too. When was it that they exercised this kind of rule? But we've seen the character of the king. We saw the character of the king in the fact that he cared for the poor and needy in 1-4. through And we come back to that idea. In 12-14, through he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also in him who has no helper. By the way, one writer says that a lot of the things that are attributed to the king in this section are things that are usually said of God in the Psalms. Who usually comes to the help of the one who has no helper in the Psalms? It's usually God. Okay. Keep that in mind. Verse 12, 13, he will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. Word save, a form of the name Isaiah in the Old Testament, form of the name Joshua, which names indicate salvation. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence. Their blood will be precious. In his sight. Now, we talked about those words, poor and needy, in verse 13, when they are used together. I think we talked about that a couple of weeks ago because they appear together in Psalm 50 and verse 7. But they also appear together in passages like Deuteronomy 15 and verse 11. Deuteronomy 24, 14, uh, which talks about leaving some for the poor and needy. I think it's verse 14. Or or it might be verse 14 talking about paying the uh, person at the end of the day. uh, Each worker being paid at the end of the day. And yes, uh, when you hire a man who is poor and needy, And this is also the type of woman that the virtuous woman helps. In Proverbs 31, I believe it's verse 20. But when these words are used together, often they indicate the one in the poorest end of the spectrum. And it says, the king has compassion on them and the lives of the needy, he will say, he will rescue their life from oppression and violence. Do any of you have a different translation for the word rescue? Mm-hmm. So What's that, Christy? Redeem. 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 The word redeem. This word is a word usually means redeem. Now, in the Old Testament, if you needed redemption, if you were poor and you had to sell your family piece of land, if you had to sell yourself into slavery, who redeemed you? Who, who redeemed you? Who came to your aid and paid your way out of that? Like the next of kin. Next of kin. Family member. Leviticus 25, Numbers 35. Deal with that. These people who have no one to help are like family to the king. He is their redeemer. He's the one who rescues, redeems their life from oppression and violence. But it really paints quite a picture of the king and his compassion. Um, The king regards the destitute and the poor as members of his own family. And that is a powerful picture. I have heard it said so often and it is so important that it is such a indicate, an indication of character to see how people treat someone who are in no position to help them or harm them. That is such a judge of a person's character. And here, the most powerful person in the land was caring for the least because he genuinely cared about them. And so, once again, there's a statement about the prosperity and the blessing. Verses 15 through 17 remind me a lot of 5 through 7. As 5 through 7 talked about the long life and the prosperity of the king. So this passage says in verse 15, May he live long and may the gold of Sheba be given to him and let them pray for him continually and let them bless him all day long. It may be a statement of the people's prayer for him. Prayers for him. In verse 16, May there be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountain the significance of that? An abundance of grain on the top of a mountain. You wouldn't have much water for it. A mountain top is not a good place for grain to grow. That would be the least likely place for it to grow And yet, even the most unfertile areas of the land are going to be transformed into places of fertility by the king's king's righteous rule. May there be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountain. And its fruits will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. Now cedars is in italics, but we see that they're associated with Lebanon so frequently. And they are some of the tallest trees that are discussed in the Old Testament. The picture of the cedars of Lebanon was a picture of the pride of the people in Isaiah 2 verses 12 through 17. But here in this passage it says that the fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. It's a fruitful place. The grain is abundant. The harvest is abundant. And it says, May those from the city flourish like the vegetation of the earth. And may His name endure forever. May His name increase as long as the sun shines. Goes back to verse 5. And the mention of the sun. And let men bless themselves by Him. Let all nations be called blessed. Now... Let men bless themselves by it. The way verse 17 ends. What do you think of biblically? What was that? Promises to Abraham. Yeah, promises to Abraham. In 72 verse 17. You think of the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. I will bless you. uh, I will bless all nations through you. And uh, in you, and then later that stated Genesis twenty two verse eighteen in your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And and here through the king from the line of David, these promises will be uh, true as well. All nations will be blessed through this Davidic king. This may show us that. Some of the submission of verses 8 through 11 may be voluntary. As they see God's blessing upon this people and God's blessing upon this land, uh, they will uh, surrender to him. But uh, verses 18 through um, 20, it says, Blessed be the Lord God. The God of Israel, uh, who alone does wonders, and blessed be his name forever. And may the earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. We have had 70, uh, something like 70... Well, Psalm 42 and 43 may have been one psalm, some think. But if you divide them up into 71 psalms because of combining those as, as one, you have David's name mentioned in 55 of the titles to this point. It may have been at this point that there may have been an end to the book and this may have been all his prayers... There will be prayers of David afterward, but only 18 through the rest of the book. Now, that may be something I need to investigate further, but we really don't know much about the development of the book. And, you know, the book of Psalms itself covers a thousand years. From Moses to Psalm 90 to return from Babylonian captivity in 1 Chronicles 26 and this the book may have had different endings at different points in their history it's not troubling to me but I don't know how to explain it well and I don't know if anybody else has an explanation that you want to give or is anybody troubled by it if you're not troubled by it let's let's only talk about it Now, I know we we did very skimpy service to some of this. But let's let's look at this picture here. What are some things that we can look at from this psalm? And we can say, yeah, that kind of sounds like Solomon. Kinda sounds like Solomon. Are there some places that you see that?
1: Well, Solomon, when he was king, first installed, uh, prayed to God for wisdom. Okay. Uh, so the first verse here: "Give the king your judgments, O God." Okay. A similar, a similar thing.
0: Okay. Very good. In First Kings three. we've alluded to, in verses 5-15, he prays for wisdom. He is seeking God's wisdom. He is seeking God's guidance, the kind of thing that this psalm asked for from the beginning. So, yet there is a comparison there between them. What else do you see? What other points do you see? There are several points, and I I know that some of you may be thinking of others and just be hesitant to speak, but listen to 1 Kings 4 and verse 21. Now Solomon ruled from all the kingdoms, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, this psalm spoke of other people bowing before him and licking the dust before him in verses 8 to 11. And we find that Solomon's kingdom is described in far fetched ways, uh, that Solomon's rule, in some ways, looks a little bit like what you see in this passage. Um, Also, the incredible prosperity. You know, I I almost hate to use the word prosperous like when I'm teaching the book of Joshua. You know, if you're strong and courageous, you'll be prosperous in everything. Because we instantly think the only kind of prosperity is material prosperity. And um, that's not what he's talking about in that passage. But this does promise Physical blessings, Psalm 72, does promise physical blessings to the king and to his reign. You see that particularly in verses 15 through 17. And Solomon's time was a time of incredible wealth, incredible abundance... Uh, The Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 10, as it is describing that uh, wealth of Solomon, it tells us that all Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest were of pure gold. None was of silver, it was not considered valuable. In the days of Solomon. So Solomon experiences incredible wealth. And we could go into that passage and and get a lot deeper into that. seeing, um, Seeing the extensiveness of Solomon's wealth. And can you think of anything in the life of Solomon? Like the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. What do you think of? Yeah, the queen if she, Think of the queen, not the king. But you have in First Kings 10, in verses 1 through 13, you have the queen of Sheba coming. And it's even one of the places mentioned here in Psalm 72, in verses 10 and 11. Now, you, we could probably go, go on with that. But, but you see, there are several points of comparison between them. Now, the next person that I'm about to quote is someone that that I've appreciated in a lot of ways. And I want to tell you, his writings help me to to, to investigate the Old Testament and to look for a fulfillment in the Old Testament before just jumping to the New Testament. Um, His writings help me. But I think he overdoes it. I think he overdoes it with saying there's a fulfillment in the Old Testament and stops there. I I think we see a fulfillment in the Old Testament in many of these things, but we have to keep looking at the Bible as one book and we see a bigger fulfillment in the time of Christ. But this this writer makes these parallels between the career of Solomon and Psalm 72 and, and he says that he thinks that this is speaking of Solomon's reign. Some of it is wishing him well, and some of it is a pretty factual description of what happened. And he makes this comment. The New Testament never quotes or alludes to this psalm and applies it to Jesus. Another writer also said a similar thing. There's a line of interpretation which reads this text as messianic. The psalm itself offers no compelling evidence for that reading. I disagree with that completely. I, I, I disagree with the, those assessments. Um, looking at verses 8 to 11. May he rule from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Caleb, at what point, if you remember back in Old Testament history, at what point were Israel and Judah the most powerful nations in the ancient Near East? What point?
1: Never
0: Never. Yes. You earned your degree, young man. Yes. Yes. Never. Now, the closest they ever come to that is the time of David, the time of Solomon, but the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, or when Israel was all combined as one nation, they were not what Assyria was in their prime, or what Babylon was at their height, or Persia would be in later Old Testament times, they were never the superpower of the earth the way that those nations later became. And those kings may have laughed at the claims that are made for this king of Israel. So, never in their history was that promise of universal dominion fulfilled. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations that is inherited. And the ends of the earth as your possessions. Okay, let's go back to something else. It also emphasizes how righteous these kings would do righteousness and justice. Now, In the United Kingdom of Israel, we have seen that there was uh, the time of David, where they did righteousness and justice, the time of Solomon. After the division of the kingdoms, and Jeroboam is king in the north, and Rehoboam is king in the south. Faith, do you remember how many of these kings of Israel, Israel in the north, were good after the divided kingdom? Zero. Zero. Out of 200 years and 20-something kings, in Israel, there were no good kings. There were some who were less bad than others. But there was none of them. None of them were good. Now, in Judah, we have a history that lasts 350 or so years. And in that time, you do have some who are described as good. They are the exception and not the rule. They are not the majority. But some are describing... It. Who were some of the good kings of Judah? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Josiah. Josiah. Throw in there? Yes. I think Asa should be thrown in here. Asa and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. Now these, I think, were the best. You have four kings in the middle where you've got um, Second Chronicles chapter um, 23 and 24, you've got Joash, then Amaziah, and Uzziah, and Jotham, you've got four, and it said they did good, but most of them, there's more bad recording than good. Jotham is not really much said about him at all, but, but these kings were pretty good, and Hezekiah and Josiah seem to be in some aspects really good. Not perfect, but really good. So, so what I'm saying, how many of these kings lived up to this kind of righteousness and justice that you see here? I mean, just, And how powerful were the people? Josiah, the last good king, really good king, did he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth? He is killed by the king of Egypt when he's trying to prevent him from going up to a battle at Carchemish He's not the highest of the kings of the earth. He seems weak. Comparatively. Babylonian captivity came. Judah's last king came. Their last king, Zedekiah, was captured by Nebuchadnezzar, or brought to Nebuchadnezzar. When he was captured and brought to Nebuchadnezzar, the last thing he ever sees are his children killed before his eyes. He's helpless to defend them. And then his eyes are put out. And that's the way the kings of Judah end. And yet, they didn't tear Psalm 72 out of their Bible. They kept it there. And they kept reading this. And they seemed to have developed the idea that while this psalm presents a picture of a near perfect king. Maybe a perfect king. That's going to do justice and righteousness and rule from sea to sea. While we don't have not experienced that in our history. There must be a king like that. Who is coming. Because God's word when it's stated is going to come true. And if it hasn't come true in the past. It's going to come true in the future. I think that's exactly how those people would have looked at this psalm. They would have looked at this psalm and and, and to say, well, there's no evidence. No. I think just to see how the other royal psalms are quoted so frequently in the New Testament, like Psalm 2, for example, shows us that, yes, they did think of these psalms in a very real sense as prophecies. Now, is it a prayer for the king? Is it a wish uh, for the king to do well in, in in a specific day and time? No doubt. But it also takes on itself the nature of a prophecy. And I would say that there are some things that Jesus fulfills about this psalm that were beyond what any Any earthly king could do. Now, for example, go back to verse 5. Let them fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. In verse 7, In his day may the righteous flourish and the abundance of peace till the moon is no more. In verse Seventeen. May his name endure forever. Now, uh, some writers will point out the times that you see the, the statement made, O king, live forever to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And that statement's even made to David. That statement's made to, to David, as I remember in 1 Kings chapter 1, when everyone knows that his days are few and Solomon is going to succeed him. As king, let me make sure that that is the case. I'm thinking First Kings um, 1, and no Bathsheba comes in, and then Nathan comes in, and they say, O king, live forever. Um, do they say that? They say that First. Verse- Kings. Well, I'm not. Uh, 31. 31. 31. Okay. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and prostrated herself. May my Lord David, my king, uh, may my Lord King David live forever. Now, obviously, those statements were uttered by people who knew the king would die. does it Jesus give a whole new meaning to that, though? I mean when the New Testament talks about Jesus' priesthood, He said He abides as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 7.17. In that case, forever is not just used in wishing a long life. Forever means forever. And so we see in this King Jesus, we see that He adds a whole new depth to these lines as he has made his name is blessed forever he's given a name above every name and remember what we said earlier too remember we said that some of the things attributed to the king in this psalm the things like he rescues and he redeems and, and all of these that there are things that are generally said about God he saves wow that's infused with new meaning in Jesus, isn't it? Because he is both God and man. He infuses whole new meaning into that. But but I I just I think that the very lack of fulfillment they experience in these Psalms, and yet them still cherishing these psalms and keeping them before them. All of this is a statement about the fact that they expected all of these to be fulfilled in the Messiah who is to come. What are some passages where you think of specifically in the New Testament where Jesus fulfills Psalm 72? We've seen some things with Psalm 72 in Solomon but remember too what they complained about Solomon after he died. They said, He made our yoke heavy. And yet this king says that he will make his yoke light. Jesus is superior to Solomon all the way around. Every, because As um, Matthew 12 says, a greater than Solomon is here. And, but what are some things that you think of specifically from Psalm 72 and Christ?
1: He will, verse 4, he will crush the oppressor. Okay. Um, Matthew 21 44. Uh, talks about if you fall on him, you will uh, mm-hmm. be brought low. But if he falls on you, you'll be crushed to pieces. Okay, it's a it's a Genesis three reference. Okay, okay. So you have uh, Psalm seventy two four
0: about crushing. And you refer specifically to the parable in Matthew 21. Is it verses 43 and 44? We see that. that I believe it's right around there. That's a little short. But also, John, I thought of this. What, what was it? Yeah, 44. Okay. I also thought of this one. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In Romans 16, verse 20, he is the ultimate oppressor. Who's going to be crushed? So that's right. Very good. What else? I mean, we could start with pretty basic elements here. We could start with verse one, the fact that he's going to be king. And Pilate puts above his head the inscription: this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. In three languages, which can be read by all who can read, who would pass by there on that day. Jesus' kingdom is one that particularly shows compassion for those who are poor, for those who are downtrodden. And He preached, blessed are those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke uh, six twenty-four through, um, I think it's Luke six twenty. Luke six twenty, um, and uh, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, there's particular emphasis on how the gospel is preached to the poor. In Luke four eighteen, uh, in Luke seven twenty-two, as he's responding to John the Baptist. Uh, He is a king who cares for the least of these my brethren. And as Psalm 72 verse 3 says, Psalm 72 verse 7, that He brings peace. Christ has broken down in His body the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, so making peace between them. And we are to have our feet Shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We've already talked about his name lasting forever. And we see that idea in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, verses 16 through 18, as it talks about Melchizedek and that promise of being a priest forever. It shows us how Jesus infuses that with a great, a whole new meaning in Psalm 78 and Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. This promise of universal dominion. Universal dominion. Jesus says in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching him to observe all things that I've commanded you. For lo, I'm with you always, even to the end world. The universal dominion of the King. And if you all have seen this, please share it with me. Because I'd like to have a permanent copy of this. And I recognize a weakness of this mount. Because I recognize that a lot of the, this mount just states people who throughout time have claimed an allegiance to Jesus whether or not it's real or not but the mount began with about the time of Christ and it shows the sphere ruled over by the Roman Empire and then it goes throughout time it goes throughout every five years or ten years showing the spread of Christianity and how at points throughout history Um, Christianity has been so much more widespread than anything um, in um, anything the Roman Empire ever knew. Um, Now, understand again this statistic on the same basis that sometimes things called Christian we wouldn't agree with. But uh, the statement was that in sub-Sahara Africa, about a hundred years, like nine percent of the people would declare themselves Christian, and now it's something like sixty to sixty-five percent. Um, I can remember asking someone; uh, it was I think in the Alabama camp who had been to Zimbabwe in the opposition and teaching the Bible there so they all say the Bible's the Word of God. you teach it in all the schools there. Wow. Um, but think about how the Word of the Lord has gone into all areas of our world and um, but think about this too. In verse, in verse ten, the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. In verse fifteen, so he may live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him. And some have thought that the wording of verse ten and verse fifteen is intentionally foreshadowing the wording of the wise men who travel from great distances to bow before him and to bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. Kings were coming from far distances to pay tribute to this king, to this king, And the Bible tells us that Jesus, the word that's used in the Greek translation delivered in Psalm 72 verse 12 is used in the New Testament to talk about Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. The words that are used about Jesus rescuing, and we talked about, or redeeming, in verse 14, this word used in the Greek translation is used in the New Testament in Titus 2 and verse 14. And in 1 Peter 1 and verse 18. And the promise is to Abraham would be fulfilled in him in 72 17 the promises to Abraham find their fulfillment in Jesus according to Peter in Acts 3 25 and 26 if you haven't ever noticed this look at this Whenever there is a presidential election which party after that has the momentum going into the next election cycle is the party that loses? Whichever party. Because people are never satisfied with who the leader is. And the man's dissatisfaction with leaders throughout time, throughout history, is ultimately leading to the perfect king whose reign will be realized in a way deeper and richer than any of us recognize right now. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't reigning now. He has all authority in heaven and earth right now. But there will be a day when that reign will be utterly unquestioned.
1: Philippians
0: 2. Philippians 2, yes. Philippians 2, verses nine, seven, uh, verses 9 through 11. You know, I like to... We'd like to think what would be the ideal, perfect situation on earth. Of course, Psalm 72 kind of paints that. It paints that, at least from the ruler's perspective. But Jesus will fulfill all of that and more. Thank you. What other thoughts do you have? Did I leave something out that I should, shouldn't have? Should have, should have said?
1: Verse 14 is pretty clear. Uh huh. About
0: Jesus. Their blood will be precious in his sight. Red and yellow, black and white—they are precious in His sight, um, and precious uh, indicates highly valued. There it is the same word, by the way, of Psalm 16-15. but it's uh, highly valued. Yes, He He cares about every single one, and and I know you try. We try to be concerned about everybody. Um. It is inevitable if we have a lot of people that we're supposed to be looking after. That somehow, in in spite of our best efforts, somebody's going to slip between the cracks. Because we're finite. But the infinite God, that's not true. Nobody slips between the cracks. Everyone is precious in His sight. Thank you for that. So much more could be said, but I would just encourage you read that psalm and let it increase your longing for the perfect King, Jesus, and to submit to Him with all we have, all our heart, soul, and mind. Jason, would you want to lead us in prayer? We praise you, O
1: God, and And are just thankful that we have your word that is so rich and so impactful to us, Father. Help us day by day to treasure more and more what you have revealed to us, Father. We have often taken it for granted. We have often neglected to read it and consider it as we should and help us to repent of that Father and to realize what a blessing we have to have your your mind given to us in in a written form that we can read and appreciate and consider and apply to our lives Father we are thankful God to serve A king who is a perfect representation of all that we have just read, Father. One who looks down upon the the lowest of love, those who have no influence on society, yet Jesus cares for each one of them. He cares for each one of us, Father. And help us to, 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 to see that in Him. To realize there is a King that is perfect in all ways. And we need to submit to Him, Father. Father, it is by Your right hand that You delivered Your people from Egypt. It is by the blood of Jesus that You have delivered us from our sins, and it is through the resurrection of Jesus that we have hope to be delivered to you uh, one day in heaven, and we long to be with you there, Father. It's in the name of Jesus that we offer this prayer. Amen. 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 You know,
0: Song John. If John was handing that out. I was. And I, and, I, and I didn't have this written in my notes since I, was, I just thought of it the way Jason worded the prayer but one of the arguments that was actually made against Christianity in early church history was how the, 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 uh, the, the Christians were made up of such such a low class of people <laughs> such a poor class yeah, I mean, that's, in a way it, it's a, it, it is open to the low it's open to everybody but it's the lowest class sometimes that take advantage of it, and and that what we would view as a strength was sometimes viewed as a weakness. Oh, so. goes berserk! Thought you had five songs here. I'm thinking, wow, some songs for that song. Really, they're all the same